This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. It's because of my Jewish grammar's influence that I became so interested in food kind of across cultures and dining and food as an experience. And my grandparents took me on many trips. And then on the other side, you know, my Korean grammar was cooking all this traditional Korean food and sitting on the floor of our kitchen on newspapers, making giant tubs of kimchi, having this experience growing up in these two cultures and moving between two cultures and really being both an insider and outsider in both cultures is what gave me the ability and the skills to start and run League of Kitchens. Lisa Gross is changing the world, one remarkable meal at a time. And in just five years, more than 5,000 people have experienced the many cuisines offered by League of Kitchens, a culinary community and social enterprise of women from around the world who welcome you into their homes and teach you their family recipes. Lisa has created jobs and given purpose to the lives of many immigrant women. She's an extraordinary culinary ambassador, and I can't wait for you to hear her story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Lisa, I am so thrilled that you're in uh, my kitchen today. (laughs) This is so wonderful. I... Do not know you very well, but I have been a fan from the first minute I met you. So we're talking about the launch of your remarkable social and culinary experiment, in Uh a way, (laughs) called the League of Kitchens. You have really done the impossible. You have found a way to organize refugee women— some some refugees, all immigrants. All immigrants. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm so glad you said that because I do want to talk about the distinction between yeah. uh, those two words and how yeah. they're used. And, and I think that's actually a very uh, interesting point. But you have <laughs> created this remarkable network of women from myriad cultures cooking and inviting the public into their homes to learn their native, authentic cuisine. Yeah. How you put this together, I have no idea. (laughs) And and you uh, started in New York City, but I believe you also have an outpost now in Los Angeles? Well, we just did a satellite in Los Angeles, so we're actually closing. Okay, so we can talk talk about about that, too, because you know what? Big ideas can't always be successful right away, yeah, or certain yeah. parts of them work and yeah. certain parts yes. don't. I learned I, a lot. Yes, a lot and I, I want to learn what you learned, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I really want to hear your story and yeah. how, this, how this began. How did the League of mm-hmm. Kitchens begin? Well, I first want to say thank you so much for having me on your show. It's really so exciting and such an honor. Thank you. So the idea for the League of Kitchens really came out of my own experience in that my mom is Korean. She immigrated here in the early 70s. And my dad is American of Hungarian Jewish descent. And we've just discovered that's yes, also your I'm background. Yes, Hungarian Jewish descent as <laughs> <Yeah>. well. <laughs> and uh, his family has been in New York City on one side since the 1890s and the other side since the 1920s. So really, I think of that side as really just they're, they're the New York Jews. 
<laughs> That's their culture. Can relate. Yes. And then my mom, obviously, um, is an immigrant herself. And when I was growing up, my Korean grandmother lived with my family. She came over when I was born to help out. Um, was going to stay until a second child was born. My parents ended up not having a second child, and she just stayed with our family until she passed away when I was in college. Mm. So um, I was very lucky to grow up with her as my primary caregiver. I actually shared a room with her till I was eight oh. out of choice. I was actually supposed to get my own room when I was six when we moved to a bigger house and mm. chose not to. <laughs> well, th- I mean, that's so beautiful. I lost my grand mothers when I was really quite young. Yeah. So that experience, that connection yeah. is so beautiful. Yeah. Where yeah. did you grow up, by the way? Uh, in the D.C. area. Okay. And so my grandmother was this amazing cook. She really grew up at a time in Korea where she made everything from scratch. You mm. know, when my mom was growing up in Korea, um, she was my mom was born in the late 40s. She was born in Busan in uh, the southern part of Korea. And in her family, they made everything from scratch. All of their soy sauce, denjang, gochujang, all of their kimchi, everything. All you the know, most they, trendy yeah, items right yeah, now. Yeah, they had a, you know, they sort of were homesteading. They had a garden, pigs, mm. ducks, rabbits, everything, goats. And they grew and made everything themselves except for buying rice or like a few other things like that. Right. And so my grandmother cooked all this amazing Korean food when I was growing up. But whenever I would want to help her in the kitchen or sort of show interest, she'd be like, oh, don't worry about cooking. You should go study because studying is more important. Yes, that was the thinking. Yeah, and I've actually heard – I think this is very common for children of immigrants, particularly Asian immigrants. Well, I guess all immigrants actually. And what that meant is that I never learned to cook from her. Neither did my mother for the same (laughs) reason. She's actually the youngest of six, so her older sisters – Number one, and I think number three, they all learned to cook for my grandmother. But the time my mom was growing up, my grandma was like, oh, do something else. Go to school. Do what you want. Don't worry about this. So same thing. What did your mother do, actually? So she's actually an artist. She was first briefly a nun, then became a nurse, and then uh, became an artist and is a professional painter, is an abstract painter. Yeah, she has a crazy life story that's a whole separate saga. But... You know, so I never learned to cook from my grandmother. My mom is not that interested in cooking, didn't learn from her mother either. And, you know, after college, when I started to cook for myself really for the first time and really fell in love with cooking, I wanted to cook Korean food. And Mm. my grandmother had passed away by that time. Mm. So and I couldn't learn from my mom. So I tried to teach myself from cookbooks and from the Internet and just nothing tasted as good as when my grandmother made it. And this is these are the Korean dishes you grew up yes, with that exactly. you're trying to replicate in replicate, some way, you yeah. know, like everything was good, mm-hmm. but there was something missing, like that secret grandma sauce or something, <laughs> you know. And did you find out what and, that was exactly? Well, so I, that sort of became this fantasy, that experience of, oh, I wish I had another Korean grandmother that I could cook with and learn her family recipes and cook with her in her home kitchen And I kind of had that idea in my early 20s, and then I went on to do a lot of different things. I was briefly a food writer for the New York Press. I taught high school English at the Dalton School. (laughs) I worked at Performance Space 122. I was an assistant to this choreographer, Carol Armitage. And then I actually went to graduate school in art focused on participatory public art and socially engaged art. And started. I'm just sitting here shaking my head, Lisa, because (laughs) this is really a remarkable... Career path. <laughs> well, it's funny because I feel like all of those disparate things actually have all contributed to my ability to start and run the League of Kitchens. But basically, in graduate school, I was doing all different kinds of projects 
using food because food is really at the intersection of everything, as you know, politics, uh, the environment, culture, family. I mean, everything. Right. And I know you're interested very much in na- uh, national identity, yes. the domestic yes. space, totally. the domestic cross-cultural space. Exactly. issues. You know, gender mm. issues, everything. And when I came back to New York after grad school, I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my next project. This idea came back to me, and I sort of had this thought of, oh, what if I could find amazing home cooks from all around the world in New York City uh, who could teach their family recipes and host small groups in their own kitchens, and that this experience would be just as much about cross-cultural learning and exchange and connection as it was about incredible eating and culinary learning. Because one thing I realized, you know, is that so often – there are small details and tricks and ways of doing things that you really need to learn from a person because yes. they're sensory cues. You know, it's like when it sounds like this, do this. Or when it smells like this, do mm. this. Or when it tastes like this. Or especially with dough. Like when it feels like this, you do this. Or if it feels like that, you need to do this. And so that's where, you know, as much as I adore cookbooks and watch food videos online, there is something so different about cooking with someone who's an expert home cook. Mm. No question. Yeah. And so... This is a very big idea. (laughs) It's a beautiful one. And again, I'm thinking about the uh, grandmother that you were really in search of metaphorically and romantically in some ways. So you had this beautiful idea. How do you get started on something like this? I mean, even from a legal standpoint, how do you find... How do you put it all together? Right, right. So... Yeah, initially, I actually thought about doing this as a public art project. So what that Mm. means is I thought about doing it as a three-month project in partnership with an arts organization. Initially, I was like, I'll find 30 people to participate. But I was like, okay, maybe I should do a small pilot just to test this out because this is a cool idea in my head. But I have no (laughs) idea what it would actually be like to find people to be the instructors or to actually have this experience. So I kind of set out to do this small pilot where I emailed lots of different organizations, um, working with immigrants, and set up tons of meetings and kind of pitched this idea. And I found two women who I still work with, Jeanette, our Lebanese instructor, and Afsari, our Bangladeshi instructor, and basically pitched to them doing this paid kind of experiment where we I created sort of a mini training for them. And then we did a series of four workshops for my friends and family. And through that experience, I learned, one, it was a great experience. Everybody loved it. The instructors loved it. I loved being a part of it. And two, it was a lot of work to find and train and and run this. And so that got me thinking, what if I start this as a small business instead of a three-month art project? And that way, it's meaningful, well-paid part-time work for the instructors instead of something cool to be a part of for three months. and then. You know, there's no limit to how many times people can do a workshop. Anyone can do a workshop. We could grow over time. We started – we actually started with six instructors. We now have 12, and I just hired a 13th. And then there was just the whole process of step-by-step trying to figure out, okay, well – what are the legalities of this? Do I need any permits? Oh, I guess I need insurance. How do I do that? Oh, I have to incorporate a business. Oh, I have to file as an LLC. It was just really one step at a time, a lot of Google searching, talking to people, figuring out things one thing at a time. Oh, I need a logo. Oh, I need a website. <laughs> I mean, my husband is a software developer, so I'm oh, very lucky <laughs> that he built our class registration software f- custom made from scratch mm. for us for free. 
you know, and even with that pilot, it was figuring out, okay, well, how long should these workshops be? What do we need? Oh, we need like a teaching toolkit of extra knives and cutting boards that we give to the instructors and other things. <laughs> or, oh, it'd be nice to have a shopping guide for students. Oh, I'm going to go shopping with our instructors and document what they buy and where and why. Or, oh, it'd be nice for the packets to have some background about the cuisine <laughs> or about where the neighborhood the instructor lives in. So it's really this incremental process of figuring out what was needed or what seemed appealing to me. This is really remarkable. And Lisa, so inspiring for people to, for the audience to listen to how you transform a big, beautiful idea into reality. So I think everyone is hearing, as I am, it's not easy. There's a lot of trial and error. You have to really go with your passion. You have to keep on cutting through. And did you Mm -hmm. actually finance the beginning by yourself? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. So you have to do a little of that too. Right. Yeah. That's the other thing. And you know, the other, I do want to talk about my other grandmother too, because she's actually going to come into the story with our recipe. But also, shortly before I started this, my grandparents had actually passed away, and mm-hmm. I inherited a small amount of money that was supposed to maybe be earmarked for an apartment, but in discussion with my parents, decided to put it towards this business. So really, it's because of my grandparents that I was able to start this business. So when we come back, you'll hear much more about what it's actually like to create a business such as the League of Kitchens and how it's changing life for immigrant women and the public. I think one food magazine, maybe it was Condé Nast Traveler, said this was the absolute coolest thing for any foodie to do yeah. is to sign up for one of your classes. Yeah. So I'll, we'll want to hear uh, what cuisines and who's cooking yeah, in yeah. all of these kitchens yeah. all over New York. Darkness falls, mysteries Here's a cooking tip to share. Today, it's from my guest, Lisa Gross. I'm going to share a three-ingredient recipe from my Korean grandmother. So this is something that my grandmother would make for me when I was a kid, when I would come home from school and wanted some sort of snack. So she would take warm white rice from the rice cooker that we had on in our kitchen 24-7, take a small palmful of rice, squeeze it in her fist into a little log shape, and then sprinkle it with salt and toasted sesame seeds. And it's just a delicious, simple snack um, with just three ingredients. From Lisa's kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Okay, Lisa, this is so exciting because, you know, I'm dying to come to one of these classes. In fact, I'm dying to come to all of them yeah. because each one of the cuisines just sounds so, so interesting. But let's get back to your grandparents and how the other grandmother figures into this story. Yeah, so my Jewish grandmother was a very different kind of grandmother. She grew up in New York City. She grew up actually in Forest Hills, went to NYU, worked her way through college by working at NBC in the 40s as a radio producer. Wow. Was the first woman in her family to go to college and was very much the sophisticated New Yorker, very much self-created as a person, loved fashion and style and travel and 
very much wanted to distance herself from her Hungarian mother, Hungarian parents, and kind of their immigrant experience, and and basically growing up poor during the Depression in Queens. But, you know, she then stayed home with her kids. She married my grandfather, who came from a, a more well-off Hungarian-Jewish family also, mm-hmm. and my, they ended up settling in Great Neck. And after my dad and his siblings had grown up, she went back to school, did a master's at NYU in communications, and became a TV producer for public television on Long Island. Your Hungarian Jewish grandmother. Jewish yes. grandmother. Yes. Okay. Yes. She sounds remarkable. Yes. Yeah. She, I mean, she was an amazing person and just so dynamic and charismatic and the person that everyone called when they needed a caterer or they needed a doctor or they needed... So, so her she was really network. a connector yes, in a connector, the a mover and, and shaker. An influencer early on. Yes, <laughs> totally. An organizer. You know, she was like PTA board president, all those kinds of oh. things. And she and my grandfather loved food, uh, loved going out, loved travel. And, you know, it's interesting because she, I think, was not interested in cooking because initially because of her mother, who is much more of like a traditional Jewish Mm -hmm. mother immigrant figure. But I think in the 70s kind of got into gourmet magazine and that kind of food culture. And, you know, I grew up sitting in her kitchen looking through her copies of Marcella Hazan and Julia Child and Craig Claiborne's New York Times cookbook and Molly O'Neill's New York York cookbook. And she said to me when I was little, so I would go out to dinner all the time in New York with my grandparents. I was very close with them. And she had this rule where I could order anything I wanted to try it. And if I didn't like it, she would order something I knew I would like and she would switch with me. Lovely. And I never had to finish anything. Those are her two food rules. And so I just was exposed to so much. I remember when I was a kid, I had never had artichokes Mm-hmm. So she went out and bought artichokes, and we had artich- She made artichokes, and we had them in her artichoke plates, which she of course had. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, or she made. I remember her making asabuco for me uh, from Marcella Hazan's cookbook, and because I somehow it came up in conversation. And actually, in probably the late '80s or early '90s, they took me to the Rainbow Room. Ah, for New Year's okay. Eve. Oh, my goodness. And it blew my mind as like an eight-year-old as like the most fancy possible restaurant you could imagine. I was just, I remember being very impressed by the bathroom, actually. Do you remember, oh, that bathroom was amazing. Yeah. Do you remember what, what year it was? That you I must have there? been like nine, 1990 or 91. Actually, Lisa, you know, we did run it then. We were still, uh, I was the consulting wow. chef there. Oh, yeah. So it's That's funny amazing. you Yeah, it. it was yeah. very glamorous, very beautiful. Yes, And yes. Your, your grandmother clearly belonged there. Right? Yeah, Because she totally. too was so glamorous. And so I do feel like it's because of my Jewish grandmother's influence that I became so interested in food kind of across cultures and dining and food as an experience. And my grandparents took me on many trips so I was the only grandchild for a while, and then I was the only mm. granddaughter, mm. and they were always interested in eating. So food was a source of just total joy and yeah, connection. Yeah, pleasure. And, and, and then on the pleasure. other side, and learning, I had... And learning. Right, and learning. and learning. And then on the other side, you know, my Korean grandmother was cooking all this traditional Korean food and sitting on the floor of our kitchen on newspapers, making <laughs> giant tubs of kimchi and making uh, soy sauce, pickled raw crab called gejang mm. from live crabs. Oh, wow. Watching her take live crabs and 
stuff them into a jar and pour boiling soy sauce on top of them. Amazing Very memorable. memories, amazing visuals. No wonder you mentioned earlier yeah. about even the sounds of cooking yeah. and why you can't yeah. cook well just from reading a recipe. Yeah. But I, I must ask you this. Were both grandmothers ever together? Yeah. I mean, what was they that had, like? Well, my Korean grandmother <laughs> didn't speak English, um, but they had their own interesting relationship. You know, we would go to my grandparents' house in Great Neck every year for Thanksgiving and Passover, and my Korean grandmother would always come with us. And, you know, she was very like this old traditional Korean lady, but very open and, and actually loved living in America and... Not only is this a book for you, this is either some gorgeous full-length movie uh, about the, the blending of cultures or some kind of sitcom. I, mean, I can really see the potential yeah, of this. Yeah, really well, it's charming. The, the other detail is I actually grew up going to a Jewish day school in Maryland till I was 13. <laughs> and I was the only – I was basically the diversity of the school. I mean, I was the only part Asian or Asian-ish person mm-hmm. there. So, But my whole identity growing up was entirely Jewish because I didn't know any Asian-Americans you know, and my entire sense of Korean culture was my mom and my grandmother. So it was kind of this funny tension there. Actually, one interesting thing is I do feel like having this experience growing up in these two cultures mm-hmm. and moving between two cultures and really being both an insider and outsider in both cultures mm. is what gave me the ability and the skills to start and run League of Kitchens. Uh, exactly. <laughs> That's a wonderful preamble to why you. (laughs) Yeah, because what am I doing? I'm really kind of helping to bridge between a mostly American student community and our immigrant instructors who are kind of all like my moms. And, you know, I really understand that. And I understand things from the inside and the outside of both sides. And I think how to navigate that. And I'm also hearing that there is a lot of joy and teaching and sharing. So who's cooking in your kitchen yeah, these days? So we have, what cuisines are represented? Yeah, Who are these women yeah, for the most yeah. part? And Lisa, also, I do want to go back to the idea of uh, refugee and immigrant yeah, sure. and uh, my maybe indelicate uh, <laughs> use of, of that word. I really want to understand yeah, more about totally. that. Yeah, okay. totally. So we have 12 instructors in New York City. So now I'm going to name them. They are from Uzbekistan, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Iran, Iraq, Greece, Argentina, Mexico, Afghanistan, Nepal, Japan. And who are these and women? And they How, are yes. the most incredible women. So basically... You find them or they find you? It's, it's a combination. So some of our instructors we connected with through different organizations, including the IRC, the International Rescue Committee that works with refugees. And some of our instructors heard about us and, and contacted us. But the, the unique thing about them all is that they all are incredible hosts, incredibly warm and hospitable mm. and generous and love people and are very comfortable talking about their lives and their stories and their families. Oh, India. That's my top instructor. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Yes, yes. Um, Great. Because we want to know how to make sag paneer. Yes, right. yes. And they're all incredible home cooks who really do things using traditional methods and techniques from scratch. So, you know, to hire those 12 instructors, I've probably talked to about 250 people at this point and done probably close to 60 cooking auditions with different people. Oh, they have to audition for you. Yes. Wow. So because we're really looking for people who are not just good home cooks, but 
expert home cooks who I've come to realize are really culinary and cultural lineage holders mm. in their cultures and communities. Okay, that's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Because, you know, I and I only sort of realized that formulation in the last year or two, really, th- really thinking about how culinary culture has been passed on over the last 10,000 years, really. And it's really been an oral tradition passed down between women in most parts of the world, uh, between mothers and daughters and grandmothers and granddaughters. But because it's been an oral tradition and a women's tradition and a tradition in the domestic space, yes. it's really many ways been either invisible or under-recognized or definitely not compensated. And so, so much of what we do actually is both Recognizing and celebrating these women as these culinary experts in their communities and cultures and creating an opportunity for them to share that knowledge and expertise beyond their immediate family or community. Yes, I very often see this idea actually in a visual that cooking in this kind of transfer of yeah. information is what I call the hand clasp mm. between generations. I got to chill. <laughs> <laughs> but I love do, that. Do men ever come to your classes? Yeah. I mean, I would say our classes are probably two-thirds women, one-third men. And that's not to say that men aren't also important in culinary culture. I mean, it's interesting. Like, for instance, our Uzbek instructor, her husband is himself an incredible cook, but often, you know, the the men's culinary culture has to do more with public cooking, like he's an expert at plov, which is usually made outside in huge quantities for wedding. It's kind of Tell like me the, what plov is again. It's the um, it's rice and it, meat, <laughs> rice, rice and meat. meat, vegetables, raisins, similar to pilau, like okay. same and the, but word this is origin. An Uzbek dish. The Uzbek version. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of like the men barbecue thing. Like it, <laughs> it is true that in a lot of cultures, the, the men's side of cooking is more physically intensive, large scale, outdoors. But also, you know, the other thing I've realized from our instructors is that in most parts of the world, the fullest expression of the cuisine is actually in the home, and that this idea of the restaurant as the kind of apotheosis of the cuisine is really a French or Western European yes. idea of, like, the 18th and 19th century, you know. So for most of the cuisines that our instructors cook, they kind of look down on restaurants, actually. It's like, oh, rest- it's like street food, festival food, or restaurants where you might go for a party or, um, oh, like the men who can't come home for wor- from work have yes. to eat at a restaurant. Yeah, for them. Yeah. But right. I totally get it because very often, depending on the country, of course, is that you never really get to know the cuisine yeah. of that yeah. country because yeah. that food is not being cooked in restaurants. Right. You will right. only get right. that at home. And it's either, you know, what I've discovered is either it's because it's too labor intensive or expensive for a restaurant to do it in its fullest expression or sometimes there are dishes that are maybe considered too simple and humble to be served mm. in a restaurant, but which are amazing. Hmm. I definitely want to hear about yeah. a few of those. <laughs> and and also, maybe you can walk us through what it really is like yeah. to go to any one of these yeah. remarkable women. Yeah. Yeah. And then, Lisa, also, uh, I think we'll want to hear what's really important for you right now, what's yeah. the most definitely. meaningful in your yeah. life and how you yeah. continue on with this. Yeah. So. And I also do want to answer that refugee-immigrant distinction question. Well, let's do that right now. So I'll start with that. So basically, I think immigrants come to the United States for a multitude of reasons. Refugees are really, well, there's both the, the kind of legal, political definition, but I think just in a larger sense, refugees, I feel like, are usually fleeing something. They're not necessarily choosing to leave uh, their place of origin. So there's, yeah, there's either Mm -hmm. 
political persecution or violence. I know that there's kind of like a legal, you know, UN definition of what a refugee is. But, you know, our instructors, they really have a wide range of stories. So, for instance, like our Greek instructor, Despina, like my mom, she came here in the early 70s as a 22-year-old nurse because in the 70s, there was a nursing shortage. So all of these nurses from all over the world got work visas to come to the United States. So that's obviously a very different story than our Iraqi instructor who came here just four years ago as a refugee from, you know, the violence and war in Iraq. You know, and then there's kind of we have instructors kind of in the middle, like our Uzbek instructor came here five years ago with her husband because she was a doctor. She was a um, cardiologist in Uzbekistan. Her husband was a professor of Central Asian history at the University of Samarkand. And the the national forced retirement age for women in Uzbekistan is 55. Hmm. So at 55, she had to retire from being a doctor, which seems insane. It seems like that's the peak of your knowledge and expertise as a doctor. (laughs) But they have three kids who had all come to the U.S. to study through various post-Soviet State Department programs. And they entered the green card lottery and won green cards. So So they came here. So that is a question that I'm sitting on, but I'm going to ask. So so it's really important that everyone does have legal status in order for you to... Yes. Even though I obviously support the rights of undocumented people and, and... good immigration reform for us because we're such a small business. All of our instructors do need to be able to legally work here. Yeah. But, you know, so it's just to say, like, so our Uzbek instructor and her husband, they kind of came here to change their lives. They're like, we want an adventure. What are we going to do staying in Samarkand? Our kids are all in the U.S. Let's move to New York. Such an amazing story. Lisa, uh, when we come back, again, we'll want to know more about what's important to you right now and to hear about your legacy recipe and what you cook at home. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached by a Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Lisa, welcome back to the kitchen. But before we hear a little bit more about what's important for you and your social activism, uh, walk us through an afternoon with one of your remarkable instructors. And now, do you call these workshops or cooking classes, number one? How yeah. do I sign up? Yeah. And let's, let's I want to uh, want to learn about Uzbek cuisine. Yeah. Because you mentioned plov. Yeah, yeah. Although the husband is not going to teach yeah. you this. Okay. Um, so, or, or choose anyone. Just yeah, choose yeah. one. Yeah, So, our, we have four and a half hour immersion workshops and mm-hmm. two and a half hour taste of workshops where you get a taste of the cuisine and the experience. Huh. But I really think that the heart of this is the four and a half hour immersions. Uh, so basically, you know, our 12 instructors live in Brooklyn, Queens, and one in Manhattan. And you get sent an address, you go to a neighborhood you've maybe never been to, you walk into an apartment building where you've ne- def- probably definitely never been to, knock <laughs> on a stranger's door. <laughs> And are welcomed by one of our instructors who, you know, are all different. All their stories are different. They're different ages from different places around the world. But they're just all the warmest women. And so I'd say almost every single one of our instructors will greet you with a hug (laughs) and say, welcome to (laughs) my home. (laughs) Yes, be prepared. And every workshop, both the long one and the short ones, Uh, start with a homemade meal. So for the longer ones, it starts with a homemade lunch. For the shorter ones, a homemade snack and drink. And how many people are usually there? And there are six students max in every workshop. So it's very intimate. Mm. 
And I think it's great to start with some food because, first of all, it breaks the ice. Oh, yes. And it gets everyone excited to eat the instructor's food and to learn from them and cook from them, cook with them. And so it starts with the instructor introducing themselves, the menu for the day. For the four-and-a-half-hour immersions, you cook five to six dishes. Wow. For the two-and-a-half-hour ones, you usually cook three. And then they all end with a shared meal. Um, mm. And, you know, we always hear from students that – they're a little nervous when they arrive, you know, it's also sort of exciting. And, and that by the time they leave, they feel like the instructor is like their new favorite aunt or cousin mm. or mom. And, and they really get to know the other students in the class. We've yes. heard many stories about people staying in touch, getting together uh. afterwards. Oh, we had one marriage come out of a class. Uh, no. Yeah, two people <laughs> met. And they, it was actually in Jeanette, our Lebanese instructor's class, and she catered their wedding. Oh, this is too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, And so it's, you know, and also just, I think it's so rare these days to do a four and a half hour experience, you know, and so people really kind of relax and their guard goes down and it's totally culturally immersive because you're in someone's home in their kitchen and you see their family photos and you're cooking Mm. with their culturally specific cooking tools, you know, like Yaman, our Indian instructor has all of the handmade vessels that were her mother's and grandmother's that she cooks with and, and you know, Lisa, I'm getting this idea, first of all, that you are some, you know, fabulous culinary ambassador, truly, <laughs> but that if this should be required for every yeah. human being yes. to do this, yeah. imagine how we yeah. would feel about yeah. one another and ourselves yeah. and yeah. get rid of this otherness and just celebrate and eat together. Yeah. This is extraordinary. Well, I think a really <laughs> crucial aspect of this is I am not at the workshops. There's no staff at the workshops. It's just the instructor and the students. So, you know, it's really unmediated. And the instructor is the queen of her kitchen, right? Mm. She's the expert, the host, the teacher. And it's really feels like a privilege to be in their kitchens learning from them. And it's the opposite of some sort of like charitable experience. Like, oh, I'm helping this poor refugee. It's like, no, I am... I am so lucky to be here eating this food and learning from this woman and learning about her life. And, you know, we often hear from students that some part of the world that felt very far away or abstract now feels personal. So, like, if you're reading an article about Afghanistan, you think, like, oh, that woman could be Nuita's sister or that man could be her cousin or, you know, particularly, I think, for instructors who are from cultures where the U.S. has been in conflict like Iraq or Afghanistan or Iran, you know, in the last few years when there were terrorist attacks in New York and the um, terrorists are from Uzbekistan and Bangladesh, I just felt like it was even more important for our Bangladeshi and Uzbek instructors to be able to welcome people into their homes and say, like, that's not us. That's not our community. That's not our culture and our country. You know, let me share with you my experience. And what better way than food, right? Yes, to, to right. To do this. Right. Is it hands-on? Or yes, are it's all hands-on. students are really chopping yes. and dicing? So it's, and... it's really the experience of kind of cooking with a, cooking a, a holiday meal with your family rather than you're at the French Culinary Institute and everyone has a station and everyone is making every <laughs> single dish from start to finish. That's a very good so, distinction. Thank yeah. you for that. That's <laughs> fantastic. So um, I don't even know which one to, to start with. I'm so excited about all of them. Maybe I'll just have to do all 12. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that <laughs> what's cool is that Every single one is different because yeah. the cuisine and culture is different. The instructor is different. The neighborhood you go to in New York City is different. Mm. And then you become different too. Yeah. Right, in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or just more of who you are because you have all this rich uh, Yeah. And, c- you know, we, we've also had a number of 
experiences where students and instructors stay in touch and students invite the instructors to their home mm. or one student invited our Argentinian instructor on their boat to do a barbecue, <laughs> to do an Argentinian barbecue or another oh, person who worked at the Natural History Museum invited also our Argentinian instructor on a behind-the-scenes tour or our Uzbek instructor actually met up with a former student in Samarkand who was there like that summer and, and took her around and... Well, this definitely leads to my next question, and it's not what you cook in your kitchen, although I want I want to know, yeah. too. Um, where does this all lead for you? It just sounds yeah. like it could get bigger. So about a year ago, we launched an L.A. satellite, which was kind of a test, because since day one, people have been writing to me saying, like, oh, can you bring this to my city, or when are you going to launch in other cities, or can I help you? And, and so I knew I had to try launching another city, and L.A. seemed like a good fit because of its incredible diversity and also the way its food culture really values immigrant food, kind of as a legacy of Jonathan Gold, so mm, I would say. Definitely. But what we found was that... The driving culture, I think, really impeded our success because Mm. in in retrospect, in New York City, every weekend people want to go out and do things and be active and be out. And I think in L.A., people drive so much during the week that on the weekends, a lot of people kind of want to just stay home or stay in their neighborhood Mm -hmm. and not necessarily drive like across the city to a workshop. Right. And we also had a lot more difficulty finding instructors in L.A. than I thought, you know, because New York City is so dense and immigrants are all on top of each other and mixing all the time, whereas L.A. has much more distinctive, separate immigrant enclaves that I think our instructors in New York are much more open to hosting Mm. groups of American strangers in their homes, (laughs) which is quite an ask, because they're just sort of used to being in the mix more, maybe. Right. Or being around more people from elsewhere. Those cities have very different rhythms, that's for sure. So Lisa, what do you cook at home? You you must be really good now. You've uh, learned from the masters. Yeah. I mean, I have learned so much just personally as a cook. I mean, I think... One interesting thing about all of our instructors, and I always feel like this is a good sign when someone says this, is they will all independently say that the most important ingredient is love. Mm. Like, literally, all of our instructors yeah. have said that to Guys don't usually say that. Right? <laughs> it's kind of a woman thing. And, you know, I've thought a lot about what that means. Mm. And I think what it means is cooking with intention and attention because you care and you're doing this for someone you love so you want it to be good and you're doing it to express your love and so there's just a really careful attention to all of the details of cooking you know when people like my mom will ask me my mom's asked me like how can I become a better cook like what what's the secret to being a good cook and I've said to her I was like Caring, like watching to do it, <laughs> liking cooking, being into it, enjoying it, because that then you pay attention. And, and so I've just learned so many wonderful little details and tricks and ways of doing things from our instructors that can apply not only to their food, but to any food. And then, you know, I, I, I do cook all of their recipes all the time, and I cook food. So I have two young kids. I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And what and do they love? Is there a particular my, cuisine they're attracted you to? You know, it's it's been kind of this wonderful gift for them that this is my work because I just bring home food from all different events and workshops and things for them, and they've gotten to know all the instructors. I host mm. the holiday party every year at my apartment. Oh, so now you have 12 grandmas. Yeah. Yeah. Lucky you. And I cook food from all these different places. And it's just like I love that my daughters are getting to grow up in this environment. Very rich, very loving. But I think uh, coming full circle to the beginning about what is the grandma's 
secret sauce. I think yeah. you just said it. It's caring. Yeah, right? it's love. Care. Yeah, love, love, care, attention. And and that leads to passion for cooking, too. I mean, all of our instructors, they love cooking. And they love eating. They must, because it's really hard work, isn't yeah. it? Doing and, the prep and, and cooking and shopping. And, and, and I think you that. have to love eating to be a good cook, too, because you have to care about flavor and, and recognize what tastes good and what doesn't. Oh, we haven't even talked about that. Right? <laughs> Flavors and ingredients and all of that. But but tell us about your legacy yeah. recipe with all yeah. of these cuisines yes. and all of these yes. grandmas. What what legacy recipe yeah. do you have for us today? So I actually brought in a recipe um, that's my great-grandmother, my Hungarian-Jewish great-grandmother's palachinta recipe. So funny. I grew which, up eating this. This the, is beautiful. Yeah, which I only cooked for the first time a couple months ago. You know, I obviously think a lot about family recipes and the way cooking is passed down. And there's a folder of recipes that my my aunt found after my grandmother died that was my grandmother's kind of recipe box with index cards. And a lot of the recipes are kind of typical 50s, 60s recipes using, you know, canned soup and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. But this is the one recipe that has someone's name attached to it. And it's Grandma Lipson's Palachinta. And that side of the family, my grandmother's father's family, they were actually named Lipschitz, mm-hmm. but they changed it to Lipson when they came here. Yes, it's very typical. more American. <laughs> and I found this and I was so excited because I didn't think I had any family recipes. And I do. I have this one. So these are very ultra thin. <laughs> so yes, these are cakes. and and Crates. really they taste like blintz wrappers, mm-hmm. like really delicious fresh blintzes. And did you notice that the first one never comes out right? Yeah, it's always too thick. Yes, <laughs> that is so true. And you know the way that these were served were traditionally were with apricot jam. So I recently made them. This recipe also made me think of you because there are very few ingredients. <laughs> Tell us what they are. Yes, Thank they're you. eggs. Flour, sugar, milk, a little salt, and then you cook them in butter. Mm. Uh, Two tablespoons of melted butter per pancake. Exactly. That's why they're so delicious. And yeah. uh, the apricot jam is also known as lekvar. Mm. And did you ever uh, have it with toasted walnuts or almonds on top? Or I have it. Sugar? Yeah, I mm-hmm. haven't made it that way yet, but I know that is very traditional. Yes. Oh, yeah. thank you so much for that. And Lisa, I do ask everyone this question, but I was so excited to ask you this question because you are involved with so many extraordinary women. So what does one woman kitchen mean to you? In a funny way, I feel like every single woman who is truly passionate about cooking and every one of our instructors, and certainly me, is actually maybe like 10,000 women cooking in the body of one woman. (laughs) May I repeat the word gorgeous again? Oh, thank you. You know, if you think about all our ancestors who learned so much about food and passed down all these recipes and all this knowledge and hard-earned knowledge and tradition over 5,000 years, 10,000 years, and then it's all in us, in our bodies, in our memories, and what we've learned. Mm. And then it comes out in in what we make. Thank you for that. I do want to ask, too, um, what is important to you right now? What's, What's next for you? Yeah, well... So just to kind of circle back to L.A., what that made me realize is New York is doing great. There's continued and growing interest here. So I want to just focus here and grow New York. We just hired a new Indonesian instructor. I'm going to start training. We're developing a cookbook proposal, which I'm very excited about. I just feel like in this current political moment where there is so much hateful, dehumanizing rhetoric around immigrants and refugees – 
what we do just feels so much more important. And and being a source of really positive stories about immigrants where it's about celebrating how much immigrants bring to our culture and our food culture and contribute and how lucky we are to have them here. That that and being a source of those stories just feels really, really important. Now, how do we all find you? How yeah. do we sign up right yes. away? So we, yes. just leagueofkitchens.com. We have three to five workshops every weekend happening all around the city. And you just sign up on our website. Fantastic. I guess I'll see you soon. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome in any of our kitchens anytime. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much for joining us on One Woman Kitchen. Thank you. And thank you for spending time with me and Lisa in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.